Even before COVID-19, widespread change had many wondering, what does ministry look like now? If that question is on your mind, you'll find answers at the Ministry Now Conference at Southwestern Seminary on March 22nd through 24 in Fort Worth, Texas. In a rapidly changing world, the Ministry Now Conference is committed to biblical truth and is designed to equip church leaders for every area of ministry. Register today at swbts.edu forward slash now. This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition Podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. On today's episode, you'll hear a panel discussion on sexual identity and loving our neighbor. This panel was held at TGC's 2021 Women's Conference. Thank you for joining us for this. My name is Sam Albury, and I'm joined by Rebecca McLaughlin and Jackie Hill Perry, and uh, we're very glad to have you with us. Uh, We're thinking about the issue of sexuality, identity, and loving our neighbor. So I'm going to ask initially, just each of you has written on sexuality. Each of you has written something about your own sexuality. What, What led you to do that? Jackie, we'll start with you. Um, So when I became a Christian in 2008, um, my testimony was something that I shared often, just out of, you know, the Lord has done this for me, and I I want everybody that I ever meet, ever, to know about it. Uh, But as that happened, I started to get the same questions about sexuality and how to apply it to, you know, uh, my daughter is gay, my son is this, my, my husband is struggling, how can I help? And so it felt like, man, I wanted to create a resource that I could just hand to people that they could be able to, you know, take what I've said, uh, which I'm trying to point to scripture and just have it for themselves. And so that's kind of how it started. And your, your book is called Gay Girl, Good God. Yes. It's amazing. I remember when that came out, it's phenomenal. Yeah, when, so people, when people say it the wrong way, they... They're charged with blasphemy. I know. It's, I'm sure I've got it the wrong way around more than once. Um, Rebecca, tell us about your own writing on this. So for me, when gay marriage was legalized across the US, I felt profoundly saddened by the fact that most churches didn't seem to be speaking truth in a way that was authentic and compassionate. Um, I I saw, broadly speaking, two things. I saw churches that were empathizing with folks who experienced same-sex attraction and throwing out 
Christian sexual ethics in the, along the way. And I saw churches that were kind of doubling down on more of a culture wars mentality, a, a very them and us approach to LGBT folk. And I wanted, as someone who had always been attracted to women, um, predominantly since as long as I can remember, I wanted to start sharing my own um, experience and, and voice in that conversation. But at that point, I hadn't even talked to many, any of my closest Christian friends about my experience of same-sex attraction. So I had to do a bit of work myself to get to the point where I was even talking to my closest friends in order to be able to then write on these issues. Was there a reason you hadn't opened up to anyone before? Yeah, um, I had talked to my husband, you'll be pleased to hear, uh, but I was desperately afraid that if I told my Christian friends about my lifelong experience of same-sex attraction, that they would all take just half a step back from me. I didn't think that they would you know, run screaming in the other direction, but I thought it would just be a, like, I need to just put in more boundaries with you now, and that was terrifying to me. Now I think I was actually taking half a step back from them by not talking to them about this area of like, struggle in, in my life. Jackie, had you spoken to many people? When did you start opening up? So it's a strong echo, so I can't even hear you, Sam. Can we just scoot closer or something? Hey, <laughs> uh, when, when did you first start sharing with other people about your own Immediately. Um, yeah, I became a Christian in October 2008. Let's say, hypothetically, the Lord converted me on Tuesday. I got on Facebook on Wednesday. I changed my profile picture because, uh, if you know my story, I was the stud, which in the black lesbian community is a woman who kind of projects a hyper-masculine self. And so, you know, I dress like a boy uh, to, to a certain extent. And so my profile picture represented what I represented. But when I became a believer, I was like, okay, what is the one picture I have with a dress on? And so I found my prom picture. <laughs> and I made my profile picture, my prom picture, as if to say I'm new now. And so it, w it was pretty quick. It wasn't gentle uh, at all. It was kind of like, hey, y'all, I was going to go to hell and y'all are too. Uh, <laughs> but the Lord has tempered that part of me. What kind of responses did you get? Um, I think shock and like good for you. I think one of the interesting things is I had a conversation with a, a friend that I used to be close with uh, because I, I kind of distanced myself from a lot of my friends because I needed to. I needed to be in a community of Christians and believers to kind of help me and shape me and disciple me. And one of my friends says, I was waiting on you to come back, but you never did. And I, and I, I don't know. So I think that's one of the things is that there was a, a, a level of skepticism that this is mere a status, a caption, a, picture, a change in your picture. But five years, six years, seven years, eight years, nine years, ten years, it's like, oh, she's, she's preaching the same message. So. Wow. Rebecca, when you started sharing with, with friends, how did they tend to respond? Do you know, I was really, broadly speaking, just very encouraged, actually, by how um, friends have responded. I, I'd spent a lot of my Christian life in you know, Bible study groups with people where everyone was sharing their struggles. And I was like the girl who didn't have struggles. Actually, I remember when I first talked to a non-Christian friend of mine um, who I'd become good friends with in grad school. And she said to me, she was like, oh, I thought you just never had any issues. 
<laughs> but in fact, I just had issues I wasn't talking to anyone about. I forget what question you asked me. <laughs> How do people respond? Yeah. So um, I think my non-Christian friends were like, I'm so sorry you didn't feel like you could tell us, which was on me to some extent. Um, my Christian friends, broadly speaking, have just been really gracious and loving. Um, and you don't know how much it means to a, a Christian who has grown up experiencing same-sex attraction, knowing that this is not what the Bible calls them to, uh, and feeling like they can't talk about it. You, you don't know how much you can minister to somebody just by listening to them and loving them um, and helping them to stand for the truth. I think people in our culture today often confuse genuine listening and loving somebody with affirming all of their instincts and desires. And what's been beautiful and life-giving for me is to have close Christian friends who I can talk to about anything that's hard um, and, and they can talk to me about anything that's hard, but that I know that they will come to me with love and with truth and that they will be on my, on my team as like anybody else, uh, you know, we all fight temptation. So is there, are there more things Christians can do to be the kind of person someone would be able to open up to? Mm. Where do we need to work more within the Christian community, within our churches to be to make it as easy as possible for people to share whatever it is they're struggling with. Any thoughts from either of you on that? (sighs) There's always a lot of talk about, you know, safe spaces, or it's not always, but recently, I think, in the culture and society, it's, you know, being safe. Uh, To a certain degree, uh, Christians are not safe uh, because we bring a message that is confrontational, a message that rattles with your idols, a message that beckons you to uh, die, you know, to take up your cross daily and die and follow Jesus. But at the same time, we're called to exhibit love and compassion and gentleness and kindness. And I think that balance is really what Christians have to figure out. I've, I've, I've come to the point where I'm beginning to believe that the difficulty with finding the balance is that we are more... Uh, cognizant of method, methods than we are with trusting the Spirit. Let me explain. I, I feel like with the even this conference, it's great, beautiful, awesome, love being here. Uh, books, uh, podcasts, all of that is really helpful, but we have to get to a point where we're just going to trust God. We're going to trust that the Spirit is going to empower us in the moment to be able to confront and be loving. And so if, if there's anything that Christians need more of, maybe it's more messaging to trust the Spirit of God. Uh, I think that's a thing that's been on my heart in the last year. That's a good word. I think often we can just make the assumption, especially in, in Christian spaces, that nobody in this room, however small this room is, experiences same-sex attraction. And the statistics are actually not in favor of that assumption. Um, there's a woman named Lisa Diamond, who's a um, professor at University of Utah, um, herself identifies as a lesbian activist. So she's, um, she's analyzing data, not from a Christian perspective. And according to the data that she's analyzed, about 14% of women experience same-sex attraction, though only 2% are exclusively attracted to other women to where they, they couldn't potentially be in a romantic relationship with a man. For men, it's about 7% who experience same-sex attraction and only about 1% who are exclusively same-sex attracted. So if you think about your church, 
or your um, youth group or your women's ministry or whatever it is, you know, if you have 100 women in the group, then you can expect that they're probably about 14 who experience some significant degree of same-sex attraction. And they may be you know, married with three kids. It's, you, you can't necessarily sort of pick people out of a crowd. Uh, and I think we need to be aware of that. We need to also be aware of the, the ways in which in church spaces we can sometimes sort of elevate marriage at the expense of singleness to where if we're saying to somebody, do you know what, um, for you as a Christian, you're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus in the very profound way of saying no to all of your sexual desires and, and, and romantic desires. Um, if we create Christian culture in a way that leaves single people kind of on the outside, then we really are just abandoning those folks. But that's not the picture the Bible gives us. The Bible gives us a picture of, of very rich community and love and between believers of the same sex as well as um, in, in marriage and, and nuclear family context. And I think part of what we need to do to be a safe space for um, Christians who are struggling in any dimension, but especially when it comes to, um, to sexuality, is to make sure our churches are places where single people are loved and in community just as much as, as married people are. I'd love to hear your answer to that question. Yeah, Sam. Sam. I can't remember what the question was now. Um, How can we be a safe space? Yes, to talk that's to right. single people. Um, yeah. So, amen to all of to all of that. I think one of the things that will make a difference is if we we speak about these kinds of struggles in a way that recognises they exist inside the room and not just outside. I know for me, I was I was quiet about my own wrestling with with sexuality simply because for many years the only references I heard were to do with the big bad world out there. Um, I was never given any kind of indication that there was permission, if you like, for this to be something Christians might wrestle with. Mm. So I think as we teach, as we disciple, as we speak about these things, to do so in a way that, that recognizes some of us wrestle with this. That's not just an, an outside the church thing. Yeah. Um, one writer, your comment about singles just reminded me of this. There was one writer who said that that intimacy is a lot like food. And he says, if your only choice was between starvation and eating really bad food, you'd choose really bad food because you've got to eat something. And he said, if, if the choice in church is no intimacy or unbiblical forms of intimacy, you'll end up going with unbiblical forms of intimacy because we need intimacy. We're designed to be known to have, have deep and rich interactions with each other. So therefore, we need to provide healthy, biblical ways of experiencing intimacy in yeah, our churches. Yeah, yeah. And just to, to build on that, because I think it's so important, um, a woman came up to me after a, a talk that I'd given about this a, a few months ago, and she said um, that she also had always experienced same-sex attraction. The way that she had responded to that, she's now married with kids, she was like, I have basically made sure not to get close to any women because I'm terrified that I might start feeling things or things might get complicated or difficult. And I totally understand that instinct. And I think it's completely the wrong approach. Because exactly to your point, if we are starving ourselves of what God has given to us, the, the right to genuine intimacy, especially actually with those of our same sex within the church, then we're going to be grabbing for the, the junk food. I think we're actually 
in the steps that we may take, thinking honestly we're, we're pulling ourselves away from potential temptation, we can actually end up more vulnerable to temptation because we're not having our legitimate relational needs met. Yeah. I think we need to recover a biblical vision of friendship and just the richness of, of friendship. Identity. Where does, where does all this fit into identity? Jackie, do you have a sexual identity? If so, what is it? How do you think about that whole side of this discussion? <laughs> it's like a spirit animal. <laughs> <laughs> For me, I've always landed on the side of not identifying myself according to my temptations, um, simply because I think that it can become unhelpful. And I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be careful with my words, words because I, there are Christians that I know that love Jesus and are honorable um, that would identify as gay Christian, right? And so I'm trying to be sensitive to the possibility of that being somebody's path. But I guess for me, it, I think it confuses or leaves more room for people to make assumptions about the Christian faith uh, that if you don't have the time to explain or walk through why someone names themselves according to that, um, it just could be unwise. And so for me, I've just always kind of been like, yeah, I'm a Christian black girl that deals with same-sex desires, but that's really not the center of who I am. Mm. I think my, my primary identifier is that I'm an image bearer of the living God um, because to see myself through any other lens for me personally gives more credit to my temptations than they just deserve. Mm. Uh, so that's where I am, mm. I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, I ain't got to clap. It's all right. <laughs> there is some agreement. Is. Uh, Rebecca, similar... Position. Yeah, I land in a similar space to Jackie, but she and I were talking a little bit earlier about this. I think it can feel different for a Christian, you know, like me, who's always been a follower of Jesus, has always experienced same-sex attraction, and for much of their Christian life has felt like this is something they couldn't talk about. It feels different if you're in that position than if you're like Jackie or like my friend Rachel, who wrote the book that Sam was mentioning earlier, who became a Christian out of same-sex sexual relationships. So it was like written on her head as she entered the Christian community. She didn't carry shame actually in the same ways that those of us who've grown up in, in the church experiencing same-sex attraction kind of carry shame. And I think sometimes you know, folks who have had more of my story will find themselves wanting to use more language of like saying, you know, I'm a gay Christian or, or having language that, that speaks that more loudly because they've had to be quiet about it for so long. And, and I can understand that, that instinct. I think, you know, I, I probably land in a similar space to, to Jackie, that I think that there are, you know, there's, a, there's a wisdom issue there. Um, I don't think it's a kind of black and white. We have to, um, you know, decry as heretics anyone who is holding to Christian sexual ethics but using a different label than, than we might do. Um, but I do think it's a, it's a wisdom issue and one where um, the more that we can actually listen to each other as brothers and sisters... I feel like one of Satan's best lies against us is to say your temptation is the thing you can't share with your friends, mm. right? Just to make it, to keep us isolated and to make us believe if you were really a good Christian, you'd be able to battle temptation all by yourself. Like that's what real Christians do. It's only that there's a weedy kind who need people to help, right? Mm. That is so not what the Bible says. 
The Bible says we are one body together. We are designed to need each other. Like Paul calls his friend Anisimus his very heart. The, the level of intimacy of the language used in the New Testament between believers, not sexual intimacy, but real intimacy, is, is such that it would be embarrassing to us in our culture if we use that language. So I think we need to, especially as we're walking alongside friends um, or if it's our own situation, who are trying to articulate their sexuality and their sexual um, patterns of temptation in light of Christian orthodoxy, I think we need to have a lot of um, humility and care and compassion in that process. Could I add something really quickly? Mm. Um, I'm glad we're having this uh, conversation because I think sometimes with the Christians that I interact with, there is this assumption that if someone labels themselves gay Christian, that that automatically makes them an unbeliever. And I think having such a black and white kind of binary understanding of sexuality is really unhelpful when it comes to discipleship, friendship, and evangelism, you know, uh, where I think it, it would be more helpful for us, one, to understand that there's so much nuance in these categories, but also just to become more curious. So if you meet someone that says, I'm a gay Christian, instead of saying, oh, I got to give them the gospel, it's, oh, explain that to me. You know, it, it leaves room for you now to gather context instead of, judging or assuming where they are with God based on a label. And so I'm glad we kind of... And that, to be clear, is not because we don't think this is something like salvation in peril. Like any unrepentant sexual sin, you know, you go and have an opposite sex affair and unrepentantly continue in that, you're in a bad space with the Lord. If you are engaging in in any kind of sexual relationship that is outside covenant male-female marriage you're in a serious space uh, when it comes to the scriptures. Uh, and at the same time, I think you're absolutely right, Jackie, that we need to be listening to people, understanding what they're actually saying um, and relating to them accordingly. Yeah. That's a good clar- clarification. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think another, another dimension to this is one of the ways I think about it. If, in as much as I have a sexual identity, I think the Bible would say my sexual identity is I'm male. Mm. I think that seems to me to be the primary way in which the Bible, if it uses that kind of category at all, our our sexual identity is less to do with our attractions and more to do with our biology. Um, In which case, I'm not primarily to see myself as, oh, I'm someone who experiences same-sex attraction. It may be true. But actually, no, I'm to see myself biblically as a Christian man, first and foremost. And to take my my cue from that rather than to take my cue from my my feelings Mm. and i take it that that's part of my eternal identity when i'm when i'm resurrected i'll be resurrected as a male i won't be resurrected with the same sexual feelings and temptations that i experience now thank god Mm. and so my my biological sex is part of who i will always be in Mm. a way that is not true for my my sexual feelings Mm. Mm -hmm. And that would be the case for, for all of us. Yeah, yeah. And I think for all of us as well. I mean, if I were to say, raise your hand if you have ever been attracted to somebody you're not married to. Right? Like, unless there is an infant in this room, which there probably is, <laughs> all of us are going to be waving our hands. So the question is not, are you ever attracted to somebody you're not married to? The question is, will you submit those attractions to Christ? And that's regardless of what they are. Amen. So if someone is either watching or is, or is in the room and they're aware that this is an area of, of personal confusion to them, mm. they're 
aware that they may be attracted to people of the other sex or to people of both sexes. Um, and they're thinking, okay, so it sounds like I, I need to let some other people in on this and have other people journey with me. That's, that's really wise advice. Where do I start? Who do I go to? Any advice for how to start opening up on these things? What, what's a good way of doing that? I guess the, the, the first thing is, are you a part of a local church? Uh, being a part of a church where then you have older women or older men that you can watch and observe and look at their lives. And if you notice, you know, oh, they are godly. Go ask them, hey, I, I like to chat with you. Um, but it doesn't even simply have to be about sexuality. The woman that discipled me, I remember one of the first things she said to me, she said, Jackie, you, sexuality is not your primary issue. It's your heart. If anything, we need to deal with how arrogant and prideful you are. And so <laughs> what she did was she discipled me holistically and taught me just how to love Jesus with my whole heart, mind, and soul, right? Which will reach and pour into my sexual, sexuality and all these types of things. But I don't think, yeah, I don't know. Just find somebody that's going to teach you to be like Jesus. Yeah. And it sounds easier than I'm saying it, but I think it, it, it's much more holistic than we're making it. Yeah, that's great. I, I'm British, so I'm instinctively very reserved. And uh, when I'd written Confronting Christianity and I, I needed to uh, tell my parents <laughs> about what I was saying in that book before I sort of published it to the world, including my you know, story of same-sex attraction, um, I had a conversation with my mum, who's lovely and delightful. And I said, um, statistics show that about 14% of women are attracted to other women. And um, I think I'm probably in that category. And she said, oh, that was our conversation. Right? That was a, <laughs> no, she, afterwards, she said, you know, I love you, darling. I'm very proud of you. Like, after reading my book, we, we sort of had an email exchange to clarify uh, these things. I'm only telling you that to say, for some people in this room, virtually or otherwise, it may be really hard for you to open your mouth to anybody, even if you know that they love you, and say, this is something that I legitimately struggle with. But it is worth doing that. And one of the redemptive things that I found in, in this process uh, with, with friends is that me opening up to them about the things that are most tender in, in my heart and the places where I'm most vulnerable has actually given them space to open up to me more about things. It, it's easy to feel like, oh, I'm just... I don't know, placing a burden on somebody or, or sucking their energies away or something. Often, actually, when we're truly honest about our struggles, temptations, vulnerabilities, tenderness, whatever it is, it invites another person to, to be like that with us. Um, so I would encourage that. I think the one kind of caution there would be to say it's, it's really easy for someone who experience the same sex attraction to think, okay, I understand that the Bible says that you can't have a sexual relationship with somebody you're not married to. But I could probably create a sort of Bible kosher, exclusive relationship with somebody of the same sex, who I would call my friend, but like, really, that's my exclusive relationship person. And I don't think that's what the Bible's calling us to. And, and if you're someone like me who, you know, where you're not a Christian, that, that's probably the place you would be. It's really important to actually have 
more than one person who you're talking to and processing with and, and building that intimacy with. Um, for you, not because you, you don't deserve intimacy or because your, your friendship is not important and precious, but because you actually, like I think all of us actually need a handful of people rather than just this one relationship. There's, there's something about the, the architecture of friendship that means it doesn't need to be exclusive. Mm. Every friendship will be unique because every, every person's different and there'll be certain things you get from each different friend that is, is particular to them. But friendship doesn't require exclusivity. Mm. And I know, I know for me, it can be one of the, the early warning signs in my heart that a friendship might be at the very beginning stages of becoming unhealthy where I just want, only want it to ever be the two of us. Yeah. Um, I love some of the things C.S. Lewis has written about friendship and about how there was him and, and Tolkien and Charles Williams and when, um, I think it was when, I can't remember which one of the two of them died, but Lewis thought, oh, well, I'll get Tolkien all to myself now. But he realized actually there was, there was something in Tolkien that only Charles Williams drew out mm. when the three of them were together. And so marriage by definition, has to be exclusive. Friendship, by definition, doesn't. Yeah. And actually, the more you kind of open out friendship and fold in other people, it actually enriches it, it can mm -hmm. deepen it, it can open up new dimensions of it. Someone you've been friends with for years, when another mutual friend kind of joins a friendship, you suddenly see a side to your, your friend you've known for years you've never drawn out yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's wisdom in in kind of spreading some of the friendship load across more than one person. No, mm -hmm. no one person can bear the full burden of carrying your entire soul mm. other than Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, he is the one who can be everything to us. No other earthly friendship can deliver yeah. that. And I think just to build on that, I think we make the same mistake with marriage. If we think that you get married and that person then fulfills all of your relational, sexual, romantic, social, everything needs all at once... Like, there are certain needs that only that person is meant to fulfill. But actually, we're not meant to be putting all of our emotional load on another individual, even if we're married to them. In fact, we are designed for multiple intimate, close relationships. And I love when Jesus says that greater love has no one than this, and that he laid down his life for his friends. So often we think, you know, marriage is up here, friendship is kind of down there, like a nice to have. But Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Striking. Um, in terms of loving neighbor, which is part of the, the kind of discussion that we're having, obviously this has become such a highly charged part of our, our kind of conversation and our culture. How do you talk to, to gay friends? How do you begin to try to witness to people where this may be a very, very tender area of life to be speaking about? Any... any things that have helped you along the way to do that? I don't know why these questions are so hard for me as if I hadn't written a book about it. Um, <laughs> but I, I think it's because the more I spend time with people, the more complicated it is. And so I, I just feel like I don't have any exact, pretty, neat answers. Um, I guess what I could say is I'll, I'll talk about one conversation or one uh, relationship I have with someone who uh, she is a lesbian, she is married, and we met um, on some terms where we were talking about, you know, my Christian faith, uh, her 
she believes that she's a believer, um, her relationship, et cetera, et cetera. And so we kind of met where our positions were explicit, you know, which is always a really good thing, actually, to kind of lead with, this is where I am about it. You know, I, I think it's when Christians want to tiptoe around what they believe that makes stuff weird, um, as if people don't have the eyes to see that you are fearful and hiding something. You know, I know what you believe about me, just say it. Uh, and so that helped. I think, too, I really did come with a genuine curiosity where my engagement with her was not simply because I wanted to give or fulfill the Great Commission. My engagement was that I saw that I was sitting across from an image bearer who also had something to teach me. And so me asking her questions about what she believed and how she was raised and what is her favorite color and what do you think about Christians that come to gay pride protests? What do you think about Christians when they leave with, I'm saying this in love, she hates it, hates it, by the way. She was like, it just feels like the fakest thing in the world to me. And what do you think about, like I asked her all of these questions, which it just became a really natural situation that wasn't about one of us one-upping each other or about me giving her like this gospel mic drop. It was simply about us just sharing that space. Um, and what has happened because of it is that we exchange and talk with a, like a, a liberty that I don't think we would have otherwise had if we weren't honest with each other up front. I don't know if that even answers your question, but it's just, just, just talk to people. <laughs> you know well and actually part of what you're saying is is listen to people yeah yeah as and we've got to know who we're talking to and I, I love that point about that there's not a single image bearer on this planet whose story is not worthy of our careful attention right mm -hmm. everyone's got a story everyone is amazing in some particular way yeah and I've always found that the more I've listened to someone got a sense of where they've come from, what their ups and downs have been, it just begins to give me a sense of where I might start in, in sharing Christ with them. Because mm. um, I, I think, which is sad, I think non-Christians have an assumption that Christians are not learners. Mm. We know our Bibles, but we don't learn our neighbors. Mm. And so I, I, I wonder if like our humility and our posturing ourselves as people that want to learn, that's a, that's, I think that's an act of hospitality to watch you and learn you so that I can, I actually know what you need now because I've paid attention to you. So I, I can now discover, oh, this ain't even really about your feelings per se. This is about that you, you know, somebody told you something about God 10 years ago that wasn't true. So what I'm here to do actually is to deconstruct that false belief that's keeping you from trusting God. But that comes through my sitting, my watching, mm -hmm. my learning, and then my challenging. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think people often confuse uh, a lack of theological clarity with that kind of loving posture that, that Jackie's talking to us about. So people often think, you know, how do I love my, my Christian neighbor who struggles with same-sex attraction? Well, if I, if I start doubting what the Bible says, then that's showing more love and empathy to them. No, it's not. That's like cutting the legs out from under them to start doubting what, what the Bible says. Um, when I'm talking with non-Christian friends, I, I tend to say to them, actually, the, the Christian view of sexuality is weirder than you think. <laughs> It's about this extraordinary metaphor of Jesus' love for his people. That is why, from a Christian perspective, that's why God made male and female, primarily, 
It's why he made sex and marriage and romance and sexuality and attraction and all of these things, is so that in the, the very best human romance, we might get a tiny little glimpse of how much Jesus loves us. You know, just as in the very best human father, Amen. we get the tiniest little glimpse of God's fatherly love. Amen. Just as in the, the very best human friend, we get the tiniest glimpse of Jesus' sacrificing love for his friends. So in the absolute best human romance, we get this tiny echo of Jesus' love for us. Yeah. So Christian sexual ethics is, is much weirder than people realize. Yeah, and I, I tell you what breaks my heart. I, I fairly often hear Christians say, um, I used to think that the Bible was against same-sex marriage. And then I met a gay guy at work, and he was a really nice guy. And he seemed to be in a really loving relationship with his, his boyfriend. In fact, their relationship seems much better than a lot of sort of heterosexual relationships I know. So now I'm not sure. And I'm thinking, okay, the basis for what we're saying that the Bible says is not that sort of gay people are in some generalized sense not nice people. Hmm. You should not be surprised if your gay friend is caring and generous and kind and a, a trustworthy person and a good member of society. You, you, if you're wondering about that, you may have been raised with like legitimate homophobia, like fear and suspicion of gay people. Mm-hmm. Um, don't repent, like repent of that, but don't repent of what the Bible says, because actually if you do, you're only offering people death instead of life. Wow. That's it. Tim, Tim Keller wrote an article a few years ago where he, he kind of referenced people who, who say that very thing that, you know, I changed my mind because I met some really nice gay people. And he said, actually, all you're repenting of is bigotry. Yeah. It just shows that your, your views are based on bigotry, not based on what the Bible actually yeah. says. Wow. Yeah. It's a really, really key point to make. Um, we've got a few minutes left. You're both mothers of young kids. Um, a lot of parents in the room, children are beginning to be told things about what sex they're going to choose to identify as and all these kinds of things. How do, you, how do you teach your children what to think about what the Bible says about all of these things? When do you start having those conversations? Any advice for, for parents here? How old are your kids? Ten, eight, and two. So you should leave this. Okay. <laughs> I think there's a big mistake that, that we Christian parents have often made, which is to say, I don't want to talk to my kids about sex until I kind of have to. Like, I want to protect their innocence, so I don't even want to talk to them about what this whole deal is. If you want to read the Bible with your kids, you have to talk to them about sex. Like, mommy, what's a prostitute? That question is going to come at you pretty soon if you start reading the Bible with your kids. And if we have a mentality which means we literally can't read the Holy Scriptures with our children because we're sort of trying to protect them from something that we think that they're not old enough to have any understanding of, then I think we need to sort of question whether we're really trusting the Scriptures to to speak life to them. So what I've done with my kids from the ground up is I've told them about sex and I've especially told them that the point of human marriage is at its best to be a picture of Jesus' love for his church. Like I built that metaphor in from the ground up And I've explained to them that God's people live differently than people who are not um, followers of Jesus. They, they go to the local public school, and in the last month, both my girls, who are eight and ten, have come back um, with stories of their teacher walking through the gender unicorn, for example, um, or uh, my eight-year-old saying that her teacher was 
talking about Black Lives Matter, and then suddenly, as she put it, sort of randomly started talking about how girls could identify as boys. Um, but because we've already had a lot of these conversations, my girls aren't sort of blindsided by this. Mm. I think, honestly, we, we have a gospel opportunity with our kids if we talk to them about the meaning of, of sex and marriage from the ground up. And the other thing that I want to build into them as they kind of go out into the world is, you know, A, this is a picture of the gospel. B, don't expect to be liked by your friends or your teachers um, for holding to Christian sexual ethics. And C, I will be as proud of you if you always remain single and you follow Jesus with your, your whole heart as if you get married and have 15 children. People of my generation typically who were raised by you know, loving Christian parents were raised with a mentality of, you know, I'm praying for your future spouse. I can't wait for the day you get married. There are lots of really good things about that. I'm not saying this to denigrate marriage at all. But actually, biblically, and Sam's very good on this, the Bible commends singleness even over marriage, right? Paul, who thought so highly of marriage that he said it was a picture of Jesus' love for his church, talks about singleness even better. So let's not bring up our children with this idolatrous idea that marriage is the real thing. Jesus is the real thing, and marriage is just like a little signpost. Rebecca, what I, what I love about that approach is you're, you're giving your, your kids a positive vision of human sexuality. It's not simply telling them what the prohibitions are. You're actually showing them what human sexuality is about, giving them a positive framework for it, so that when they come across different viewpoints when they come across biblical, pro biblical prohibitions, they've got a framework into which to place those things, rather than just hearing negative messages when the world seems to have positive messages. That's really, I love that. Jackie, any thoughts? So my children are six, two, and six months. So I am literally clueless. Um, <laughs> I do think, though, uh, speaking at enough, you know, universities and with enough teenagers and college students, I've started to think through how I think I, I really want to be intentional about raising my children to distinguish between uh, their feelings and their identities. Because when I talk to students, it seems as if when they get a certain age and they, they start to feel a certain way towards the same sex, that they're caught off guard by it. And the messaging from the world is, because you feel it, that's who you are. And I just wonder if their parents ever equipped them to actually know the difference between the two. Mm -hmm. And so some of what I plan to do with my daughters is to say, you're going to feel a whole lot of ways. Mm -hmm. One, you're in a body that is just weird. Uh, you're you, you going to have puberty, which is just, just weird. Then you have the flesh and the devil, like you have a lot of things working against you when it comes to your emotions and your feelings and your heart. But what you need to know is that you have to trust God's word, even if it contradicts how you feel. And so you could do that when it comes to anger. You can do that when it comes to sexuality. You can do that with greed. You can do that with all types of things. But I just... I just want to lay a foundation so that as they grow and they start to feel these temptations towards these things, they don't believe the world when the world says, ah, that's your identity. That's who you are. They'll know that their identity should be found in the person of Jesus Christ. So, that's my hope. <laughs> uh, we have two minutes left. Any 
final nuggets of wisdom from either of you? Rebecca, mm. you must have <laughs> I a final too much, nugget of wisdom. Too much to blurt out. I think we have the most precious thing that the world needs. And that is Jesus. And Jesus' body is in this room right now. We need to live as if what the Bible says about the church is true, which is that we are brothers and sisters, that we are one body together, that we're comrades in arms. We need to live into that sense of community and intimacy um, that actually often folks associate with uh, the LGBT community, a sort of non-traditional family, like people who aren't in a nuclear family or biologically related to each other, who truly love each other and show up for each other like family. That should be what people say about the church. So let's make that real. And then what we have to say about sexual ethics will not sound like a kind of barren wilderness of hate, but a lush and beautiful landscape of love. I have a few things, but I'll, I'll keep it short. One is that what, one thing that James says that is relevant to this conversation is that if you ask God for wisdom, he'll give it. You know, we, we need wisdom desperately. Um, these books and podcasts, again, are helpful, but we need the wisdom to know how it applies to the person standing in front of us. But two, I had a conversation with someone last week that was really interesting, and she was saying, she's an older woman, she was saying that so many of her friends who are her same age, baby boomers, are loosening their grip from biblical orthodoxy. And I said, why do you think that is in regards to sexuality? And I said, why do you think that is? She was like, because they've made their idol, their children's happiness their idol. Mm -hmm. And so I guess that's what I would say is guard yourself from loving your children more than you love God, because that will keep you from being willing to read something or believe that the Bible is saying something that it doesn't to appease your children. Uh, love God more than them. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Check out more gospel-centered resources at thegospelcoalition.org.